Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we welcome back a friend. V.L. Valentine, aka Vicky Valentine, is only the second author to return to Talking Scared. She was first on the show way back in episode 31 to talk about her debut, The Plague Letters, and now she's back with her second novel, Beggar's Abbey. This will obviously be less and less of a big deal as more writers come back around for the second time. But right now, it's still special. As such, and despite the fact that we've only ever actually conversed for about two hours in total via Zoom, this week's episode feels like a reunion. One in which I get taken to task (laughs) for being a lazy ass and, and not finishing my novel. But, as I told Vicky, it's not my book you're interested in, or it shouldn't be. Instead, you want to hear about Beggar's Abbey, about how Vicky has written a proper old-school gothic, full of secret rooms and even more secret histories and strange deaths and mad old ladies and lots and lots of ghosts. Vicky and I talk about all those things, as well as writing historical fiction in tight windows of time, something we're both struggling with. We discuss the psychological underpinnings of gothic and the macabre details of real-life dungeons. We talk about the learning curve between book one and book two, and we consider how the Twitter sphere has made it more tricky to write nasty female characters. And we do, I'm afraid, get into the evils of Downton Abbey. Long-term listeners, I'm sorry. I do keep it brief, but it's Vicky who brings it up, and trust me, this time it's relevant. That, of course, will mean nothing to new listeners, but let's just say I have form with Downton Abbey. And if you are new to the show, or or if not, if you've been listening a while, if you want to support the show, you can via Patreon. Just sign up at patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod or go via the show notes. You'll get extra episodes on a whole range of topics, and you'll help this show go from good to great. And I do promise, going forward, none of that bonus stuff will feature Downton Abbey. (laughs) But for now, onwards. Come with me to a crumbling edifice in the north of England. Bring a torch, because there be shadows, and they are deep and full of secrets. Let's talk scared. Well, hi, Vicky, and welcome back to Talking Scared. You're our second ever returning guest. How are you? I'm really good, and I am so excited to be talking to you. And uh, the fact that I am returning to your show makes me very happy. And who is the first returning guest? Josh Malaman. Got it. Who just, I can't, I'm, I'm like Josh, you know, I've had enough of you, mate. Please stay away. Like, he's, he's, oh. if, anything, if anything, he's too keen. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Sorry, Josh, if you hear this. Uh, well, for those who are new to this show, because I believe I am still picking up new listeners, uh, you can hear my first conversation with Vicky back in episode 31, which is a, a whole pandemic ago. Um, we, we talked about Vicky's debut novel, The Plague Letters. Um, and now we're going to talk about her next sort of soft is it sophomore is that the word sophomore um sophomore sophomore sophomore, yeah yeah. um but before we get to that how has the intervening time treated you uh it's been uh low level chaotic and i guess i'm happy that it's a low level right because as you said we've got a whole new war going on and we all just came through the omicron surge and uh i i and my family have gotten through all of this completely unscathed, which is pretty terrific. But it, it at the same time, it's definitely, uh, my brain has taken a hit for sure in all sorts of weird ways. How about you? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I just, my entire life is a kind of fugue state where I'm either, <laughs> yes, I'm either copywriting or reading or talking or editing a podcast and, or I go, I'm doing this thing where I run every day for a year, um, which gives me some degree of sanity. Uh, because it's like a little bit of time for me to just go for a run every day. But aside from that, it's just me facing a very grey wall 
um, doing things on a computer. Yeah, the the running is definitely good because yes, I bike, and if it weren't for the biking, oof, look out! But um, it's been it's definitely been a surreal time for sure. Yeah, I feel like the world has shifted slightly, and we've gone just way off kilter, almost in some yes. kind of parallel universe. It, it feels like we need a, a a season of quiet. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, just that would suit me—a sort of season of rest. Yes. Well, listen, we'd better get to the book. Me, I feel like, I mean, you could talk for hours and yes. not even mention your book. It, yes. I, I, we were saying off air that, that there are a few guests that I feel like I've become friends with via this show and, and via social media, like you and Tina Baker, who always asks about my dog. And if you're listening, Tina, hi, he's fine. Um, <sighs> we're saying we, we, we'll have to go to the pub at some point when we're all together. But we do have an obligation to the listeners. So let's 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 talk about your book. Well, we're going to we're going to talk about Tina first, because Tina is somebody I've come to know around the same time scale as you and completely only have a Twitter relationship with yet. I feel like I know Tina and her husband, Jeff, really well. And um, I now hear Tina's voice in my head, which is strange, because, again, I've only uh, had a couple of Zoom meetings with her dealing with our publisher and things like that. But like she's such a presence. She's just so she's warm you know, how many, how many thousand miles away are you guys? How, how, how 2000 miles oh, away? I, I don't know. Let's just say 2000. Like that, yeah. Let's just say you guys are 2000 miles away. Yet I definitely pick up this kind of warmth from both of you. And it's really neat. But at the same time, I need to say I'm completely intimidated to be talking to you and, and, and very nervous about being on your show. Um, I've been listening to you for the past year you know since I, I first met you and um you're just so insightful and your guests are so impressive and we can start talking about my book now because the last episode of yours I listened to I had to turn it off because it's like what you what you said and I forget which guest it was but you talked about I think this horror trope where you take a, a woman a girl and you give her an androgynous you know, name or a man's name and how like the, that's just this horror cliche. And I was listening to that uh, <laughs> right after I turned the final draft of my book in <laughs> and I was like, oh, so it's like, it's like when you've taken, when you've already taken the test and then you're getting the answers afterward and seeing all the mistakes that you're making. And because your show has so much in it about craft and, and what makes a good story and I'm afraid to learn even more about the mistakes I've made. But anyway, so that's that's a good seg into the book, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave all of that in with with absolutely no humility whatsoever. That's gonna stay in there crassly. I'm actually putting sure. my my nomination for the British Podcast Awards uh, this weekend, and you have to submit a clip of audio, and, and that may make the, the sizzle reel. So, Great. yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, I, I mean, I get I started getting scared listening to your podcast because of the wealth of brilliance that was coming at me that would help improve my writing. And I just wasn't ready to receive it. I don't know why. I think it's the fear of failure, right? But I was just like, whoa, this is too good, too good. Anyway. I was thinking, I feel like I'm still trying to finish a novel. We'll get to that. We're going to get to that because, yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, listen, over to you, right? Enough about me. Um, no, no, because I need to hear about your short story, which is which I love, right? And you need to let me read it because it's about plague on a ship which are my two favorite, two of my favorite subjects. Yeah. And so you're going to have to send it to me, please. Thank you. Okay, I will. It's a story about, you know, how the, the, the Black Plague kind of came into Europe in Sicily. Yeah. Uh -huh. Supposedly. It's about the first the first ship that, that lands and the monsters, both, both human and otherwise, that it brings with it. And, and it's called Fleas on the Rat King's Back. So that's, that's all I'll give you. Okay. Anyway. I cannot wait to read it. Okay. All right. So, you came last time with the plague letters, which, for those who don't know, was this historical serial killer, grotesque murder mystery. Um, now you're back with a whole new kind of horror story for your follow-up, which is called Beggar's Abbey. You know the drill by now. Can you begin by introducing us a little to the story? 
Yes. So Beggar's Abbey is told from the viewpoint of this young American woman. She's 26 at the time. The story starts in 1954. She's living in what's called a tenement in Brooklyn, New York. Her mother has died. She doesn't really... She's adrift. She's lost. She doesn't know what to do with her life. She feels like she has no connections and she's not grounded in anything. And she's got a lot of anger at her mother, too. And um, <clears throat> she's about to be evicted from her apartment. She's looking for any last thing she can sell or pawn because she's out of money. And she finds some letters. And she learns that she has family in England, in Yorkshire. And she decides, what the heck? I'll take a chance. I'll force myself upon these people and see if I can have a family, right? If there's anything here. And so she does that. She gets it. She manages to get a train ticket out of them. I'm sorry, not a train ticket. She gets a train ticket and a boat ticket and uh, gets on over to Yorkshire to this place called Beggar's Abbey. And there she learns a lot about her family. And <laughs> I don't know how good I am at selling it, but um, but basically it's a bit of a it's a bit of a ghost story, a bit of a murder mystery, a bit of kind of intergenerational trauma. So it's kind of mixing all of those things together. And so you could just call it I don't know. It's kind of an update on a on a haunted house book. Well, there's the old adage, you know, write what you know, and and the plague letters seem to grow logically and obviously out of your experiences of writing on science and medicine because for those who don't know you're a science journalist who has dealt a lot with pandemics and endemics and outbreaks and stuff like that yes so it seemed obvious that that's where you, your imagination would go to for that anchor for the first story what about beggar's abbey though because i'm assuming that's coming from a whole different place why why the transition to the ghost story in the gothic mode? Okay, a secret that I am not proud to reveal is that when I'm really stressed, my best friend and I, both of us, when we're stressed, we watch Downton Abbey. And we always talk about how our favorite characters are the servants. And so part of it was thinking, you know, this conversation with my best friend, like, well, Downton Abbey, if, if we were doing that show it wouldn't turn out like this because first of all, we wouldn't be Lady Mary. We wouldn't be the upstairs people. We would be the servants. And so that's kind of where it came from. Like these fantasy conversations my friend and I would have about what our life would be like living in a grand old house like Downton Abbey. And so I kind of flipped that over and turned it into Beggar's Abbey. And that's also kind of why um, Sam, um, the, the protagonist of the book, why she comes from a working class background, because um, that is what I know. I come from a working class background and I could not write a novel at this point from the point of view of the upstairs folks. I could only write it from the point of view of the people that work for them. And so this is a way into that kind of story. Does that make sense? It does. But why did you want to write this kind of story? Why... Why take on the ghost story coming from a scientific background, for example? So, um, because uh, I do have a fascination with ghosts and I do think ghosts very much fall into the scientific realm because science really is just asking questions. What is this? Why does this work this way? And uh, ghosts, you know, the supernatural, paranormal it's the same thing. It's trying to figure out what comes after death. Um, what is death? Why is there death? And how do you explain these things? Um, so that's how I see them united. And I don't think uh, uh, they don't rule each other out in any way. I think a good scientist, <laughs> I'm hesitating, I shouldn't say that. I, I think, you know, Anybody who has a curious mind would ask these questions. And, uh, you know, I grew up again, I grew up in Western Maryland and it's kind of a haunted region. There was a major civil war battle there at Antietam. 
And it was considered a fun field trip for our school to take us there when we were like seven and eight years old. And so there's a lot of old buildings around there. And so it was kind of a pastime ghost hunting as a kid there. Uh, we would go drinking in the cemeteries and in the, in the battlefield. Um, so it's kind of just always been there, this kind of curiosity about is there an afterlife and what is it? See, I like that, that because make... it does make sense. I've been saying for years that I don't get why supposedly paranormal events can't be open to scientific interpretation. And there's probably scientists out there just kind of like just, just bawling their fists right now as, I, as I'm as i saying this. But I, I don't, as you say, I don't think that they're mutually exclusive. Yeah, I think one of the things, um, maybe it's a misconception about science. Basically, you know, we can't explain so many things in our world and in this universe. I mean, how do you explain that the universe is 12.7 billion years old. I mean, what came before? What's going to come next? What is a billion years? How is it constantly expanding? How can there not be an edge? And I think a lot of scientists uh, will be very humble about all the things we don't know. We don't know how the human brain really works. We don't, you know, we don't know how, how to create life from nothing, right? There's so much we don't know. And how can we say that we don't know what that, how can we rule out the supernatural? Yeah. And and the fact that there are different dimensions and there are different planes um, and, you know, there are limits, huge, huge limits to what we can understand. The supernatural is only supernatural until it's natural. Do you know what I mean? And, And basically when someone comes along and can reconcile particle physics with Newtonian physics, when they can do that, I'll start listening to their, their dismissal of, of, of weird shit. But until then, I, I'm open to pretty much anything. I agree. There's this um, one of the ghost uh, shows, reality shows in the U.S., Kindred Spirits. It has, you know, this great investigator, Amy Bruni, and her partner, Adam Berry. And they, um, they talk about how exactly what you said. They approach spiritual phenomenons, you know, supernatural, as if it is natural. It's not something to be afraid of. It's not something to think just because it's strange that it's there to harm you. And it's not, you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's our own brains deciding that this is scary versus whether or not it is scary or not. Uh, so that's, that's ghost hunting shows and Downton Abbey. Your trash TV tastes aren't really being exposed here. Yes, totally, totally. My, my wife is currently on her like third rewatch of Downton Abbey and it causes actual arguments in our house, like genuine arguments because listeners, I won't go into it again, but I basically blame Downton Abbey for everything that's gone wrong in this world since 2016. Trump, Brexit, probably Putin, the lot of it I blame on Downton Abbey. I've got, there's a whole thesis waiting to be written there, but my wife doesn't appreciate it. And the other day, someone told me that um, my that my voice reminds them of Thomas from Downton Abbey. No, no, no. Yeah, uh-uh. yeah. No. Which what, so? What's your the? No, yeah, that's that's yeah. No, what's your thesis about why 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 do you blame every all the things that have gone wrong? All right, sorry, listeners, you're hearing it again, but you can fast forward for like a minute and a half. Um, basically, I think that Downton Abbey is a tool of the establishment. I think it's propaganda. And I think it's propaganda for this idea that that for, for a false nostalgia about a world in which people knew their place, and in which we had a an automatic respect for our supposed betters. And I think it's trying to reimpose that narrative. So I, I as a as a journalist, I have to be very careful about putting my own opinions out there. But I will say this. I, I, yes. And um, the reason why I turn it on when I'm stressed, it's on in the background. It's because it creates this feeling of warmth. Right. Even though, like you said, it's completely false. And I know it's false, but it does a really good job at creating that warmth, especially on days when you're just feeling um, like everything's cracking. So mm. you're totally right. I mean, you're. I mean, I, I agree with your assessment um, and we could easily 
jump from there to talking about aggression, but maybe we should. I don't know. Aggression is part of one of the themes in Beggar's Abbey, so... Well, it is, and, that, and that's what Downton Abbey evokes in me, like just a real incandescent crimson rage. That's, what, that's my response. That's the warmth. It's an incandescent rage that I get. Yeah, there is this moment, one of the moments when Robert, the head of the household, like, you know, they're at dinner and somebody says something not right and proper, and he gets to bang the table and yell to get everybody to behave again. And, like, it's that kind of aggression. Um and that somehow we that show is reinforcing that it's okay for men heads of families to behave that way and that that's the natural order and um that is something that that i talk about a lot with my friends in that established system and what that is preserving mm-hmm. and at what cost so yeah so there you go it's to blame for everything we can blame down <laughs> for, for the oscars for will smith <sighs> so we can move on from Downton Abbey to your book, though, because it is set yes. in a big sort of manor house, you know. Um, yes. And I find this interesting, right, because it's an emphatically gothic story. It kind of revels in the tropes of the gothic. I think you admit that, you know. Yes. But you chose the 1950s as the period setting. So why did you opt for that decade as opposed to, say, sometime in the 1800s when this genre was at its kind of apotheosis? Um, Because I needed to have a character, the protagonist, um, Sam, Samantha. I needed to have, just as I did in uh, The Plague Letters with the character of Penelope, I needed to have someone who could freely move about in the world Mm -hmm. and do things um, even though Penelope, it's a slight, she, Penelope is able to do it in the plague letters because she's an urchin, right? She's, she's not even working class. She's just, she's just street dirt. So nobody pays attention to her so she can do whatever she wants. And by having, uh, Sam who is from kind of, uh, a working class neighborhood in New York, um, in the 1950s, I could have somebody who can move about in these different worlds and not really be questioned about it. Um, you know, she's still, you know, being told throughout this novel that you should do this, you shouldn't do that, you should do this, but she can travel by boat across the Atlantic freely and ask these questions freely. She may not get answers. Um, in 1950s, it was still a very reserved time in a way before you get the 60s, 70s, 80s, where you just have um, changes of all sorts in terms of behavior and norms. And so I wanted there to be some restraint on her behavior. And that seemed as kind of as late as I could make it before things really start to change. Does that make sense? It does. And that leads directly into something that I found particularly interesting, both in terms of your book and in terms of the book I'm trying to write. So... By the 1950s, these, you know, the, the days of of sprawling self-owned estates with huge staff and society events and all that, it was in its death throes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the grand old houses. I mean, Downton Abbey makes a theme of that, that those days are passing and they've got to cling and perhaps sell off bits of the land and parcels of this. And, and it's, it's a time where, where the great houses often were either sold off or fell into disrepair. Um, and, and that makes Beggar's Abbey this weird, liminal, uncomfortable space, even without the haunting. It's got a foot in two ways of life, in two eras. Um, how did you handle that? Because I'm having real difficulty because my, yeah, my, my attempt at a book is, is hitting, hitting a wall with that strange, pivotal time period. Yes. So on a very practical level, you know, um, Lady Cooper, who who is the woman that in the book owns Beggar's Abbey, uh, she has been an invalid for about 30 years, which has helped preserve the money, so to speak. But at the same time, it's it's also meant there haven't been great expenditures, right? Her husband was 
a Manchester merchant. So he, he brought in the new money to prop up the old house. And then there was uh, misfortune hit them. And in some way that protected their finances. But at the same time, it is very much, it, it is what it has in common with a lot of novels that feature old houses is that this way of life can't go on. And it, you know, I was thinking also about the little stranger and I don't know if this isn't answering your question directly, but you know, the little stranger, which is one of my favorite books by by Sarah Waters. Me too. It's about a, a beautiful old house. It's very shabby. It's falling apart. You know, the family can't afford it, can't take care of it. And, uh, the doctor, there's a doctor, uh, comes from a working class background. He, becomes friends with the family, but uh, his anger destroys that family. And, you know, it is this thought, well, maybe they should, this is a horrible thing, but this is fiction, right? You know, maybe they should die, right? Because that is what you're talking about is these, we're taught that these people that live this very uh, beautiful, genteel life, that somehow they are better, and yet it's built on the sweat and blood and in the U.S., right, when you're talking about slavery and death and abuse of, you know, why should they be allowed to live, even though that's a very cruel way of looking mm-hmm. at it. That's the beauty of horror fiction, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You can just, yeah. you can just kill people. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's a very, you can work on a very crude ethics with horror fiction. Yes. And if someone deserves to die, you can kill them and, and no one really blinks. It's one of the, yeah, one of the, one of the yeah. great benefits of the genre. Yeah. So so tell me more, though, about the dilemma that you're having with. So you've got an old house. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. In so your, in your book. So uh-huh. I, I know I've had, I've had quite a few people recently on various social media um, platforms write to me saying, how is your book going? You haven't mentioned it for a while. Listeners, this podcast has taken over my life and I don't think I've written a word of fiction in about eight months, um, but I am determined to get back to it. And yeah, basically, my story is. It's, it's set in two periods because I was fascinated by the idea of a very old protagonist. I don't think there are enough old people in fiction. Yes. And I wanted yes. to tell the story about an, an old man who comes back to um, comes back to, the, to a scene of, of horrendous trauma and violence from, from his mm-hmm. youth. Um, but it meant mm-hmm. weirdly trying to balance this thing where he had to be the right age in the present day. Um and also mm-hmm. the right age when the thing happens that that propels the plot. And that then meant that I only had a very small window of time that I could set stuff in the past, which all takes place in this big house, pretty mm-hmm. much set on the moors near where I live. It's all set around the valley that I live in. Um, and I was like, can I really do a thing where I where it's the, the late 50s and this house is still still operating as a grand you know, estate? And I had to read all about it and, and come up with the idea of some sort of new money coming in and buying it. Mm-hmm. It just became, I mean, obviously you could just go, it's just a story. Here you are, but it feels a bit of a cheat. So I've, I've had to kind of reconcile reality with a little bit of fabrication because it's, yeah, because by then all these houses had just been either sold off to millionaires and, and were being partitioned off as, as flats or hotels or they were falling apart. You know, yeah, you, you're right. I did spend a lot of time. I did have to reconcile it, and I did have to make it somewhat real in terms of the situation. And my editor did ask a lot of those questions, right? Like, well, this doesn't make sense. How do you? How would this happen? You know, so you do have to kind of logically put it together. You're right, and I um, and I had to figure out what were the characteristics of each era that I was working in that were going to work for the story that mm-hmm. I was going to tell, right? So yeah. But but yeah, well, and I agree with you. There's not enough older protagonists, and I definitely or older characters, and I definitely wanted to have older characters in this novel, and I didn't want it to be about uh, an ingenue, you know, like a young beautiful woman. It's it's kind of the opposite too. Like you know, I love stories about you know, it's the Jane Eyre story, right? Falling in love with an old, you know, a, a, a richer. A wiser person but of course you know Jane Eyre the age difference is crazy um so it's it's like playing at that too I've always wanted to write a story um a kind of sequel to Jane Eyre with the title reader I murdered him yes yes you know yeah, and kind of yeah. rewrite the ending I love it I love it 
yeah, absolutely. I might, I might do yeah. that one. Yeah, that, that's trademark, people. I that, that's my title now. I may do that later. Um, so we're talking about a lot of books here. We're talking about the little stranger, Jane Eyre, and stuff, and all that. Um, possible inspirations. Question for you: Last time around, we talked at length about your love for Susan Hills, the Woman in Black. Yes, it was your recommended book, yes. and I I wonder how much that book had an influence on Beggar's Abbey. Yeah, absolutely. It would be a complete dream to write such a simple and beautiful ghost story. Deceptively simple, right? Because clearly, it, as you know, it takes a lot of work to come up with such a wonderful story. Uh, though I'm not sure she would say that. She would say it just came to her probably. But, um, <laughs> you know, there's a lot involved in putting together what seems like even the simplest of storylines. And it's just there's it's just such a beautiful, simple ghost story in all the best ways. And so, yeah, I, I, I would never think I could come close to writing a ghost story as wonderful as that. But definitely it was an attempt to do a ghost story. Yes. Well, there were a couple of things that made me made me think of the connection um, because you described Hill's novel when we spoke as a sparse spare book. Yes. And I think in some ways, not not all, but in some ways that applies to Beggar's Abbey because you really don't mess around. In like, I was quite taken aback by how how quickly you move at first. So in just in just 10 pages, you give us all the backstory we need on on Sam and her mother and their precarious position and then a few more chapters you've turned sam's life upside down and you've moved her across an ocean to beggar's abbey and and that it felt like a similar propulsive start to to what susan hill does with i can't remember the character's name but the way she just gets him she just presents us right he needs this money she just gets him to um the house i've, I've forgotten all the everything the eel marsh house um she just gets mm-hmm. him there and it's that same thing, right? No messing around, cut to the bone, give us what we need to know, and then get to the house. Was that something you were kind of really intending to do? Because you could have taken ages over it, but you, you didn't. Um, I did do it on purpose. Um, yeah, so the plague letters I spent, oh, you know, I started writing that book in 2005, and it was published in 2021, right? And when I say I started writing it in 2005, I started researching it in 2005. I spent about 10 years on and off researching that time period and plague. And uh, and then I, I took about a year writing the first draft and then went through a couple of years of, you know, um, editing that and then, you know, getting an agent, getting a publisher, getting an editor. And uh, I really enjoyed writing that book. I love that book. I love the characters. I had so much fun writing it. Um, the early drafts of that book, which, you know, thank you to anybody who suffered through it, were things take too long. Things are taking too long to happen, right? Right. And so I had a much shorter window for writing Beggar's Abbey. I had about uh, a year to write it. Um and I, I was also um, wanting to try something different, which is a kind of ghost story, right? So I had a year to write it. So that kind of drew some lines around what I could really research. Um, and it meant also just jumping right in and getting straight to um, the problem. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and I also, it's really, so sometimes, you know, writing is about what your limits are. Again, I, di- I didn't think I could write this book, set it in England and tell it from the point of view in modern times of a British person, because I just don't know the language, the accents, the mannerisms enough. Like I wouldn't be able, you know, people reading it in England would think uh, that's not right right so in the plague letters I was safe from that because nobody was alive Mm -hmm. back in the 1600s but this you know Sam as an American was my way into this society and this culture where I wanted to set this story so that's kind of again it was like shoring up my own deficits about what I knew and what I didn't know 
to tell the story that I wanted to tell. And the story that I really wanted to tell was about intergenerational trauma, right? Which is something that I think about a lot and also in my day job as a journalist is like problems that happen in one generation that aren't resolved for whatever reason, um, how they can be visited on the next generation, the generation after, um, in a very serious and debilitating way. Um, you know, in the U.S., we talk about this a lot in terms of um, race relationships, but also in, you know, in terms of any kind of abuse setting. Um, and so uh, I wanted to explore, and I, I think people don't think about that a lot in America. You know, the idea is pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Any one individual is born with a clean slate and you can go out and conquer the world, right? Like that's the American myth, but it's not true. Um, your family, your ancestors are all influencing you, setting you up, tying you up in one way or another. Uh, and so that's what's in this story, particularly with what happened to Sam's mother and what that meant for Sam's life. Um, and, I, and I've seen, you know, in various places I've lived, right, you see how the trauma of one generation is actively visited or not, that's not even the right word. It's actively playing out in the next generation. Well, this is what... This is what I mean about it being highly gothic, right? Because I'm going to get my nerd hat on now. This, this is where I, yeah. this is where I roll out the uh, professor elbow patches. Yeah, um, yeah. By that, I, I, I don't just mean oh, it's creepy, you know, oh, you know, the atmosphere, oh, it's an old house, there are ghosts. I don't just mean that. I mean it's gothic in the original historical and psychological mode, in that it, it is about the sins of, well, quite literally in this sense, you know, the sins of the father yes. being passed on yes. to the next generation and and on ad nauseum, and how that takes an almost physical manifestation in in the in in the the building which has become a, a site of trauma and eruption and ruin, and you know th th that's all that's what the Gothic was founded on this idea that ghosts are literal eruptions of historical trauma right yeah i like that because it feels like more recently and there's probably a really interesting argument to be written about this that i can't think of off the top of my head but it feels like we've been given these much more ephemeral demonic forces in mm. supernatural fiction you know just Mm -hmm. you know, a, a thing that, it, that just is and is evil and wants to hurt you. Mm -hmm. Whereas your mm -hmm. ghosts, in, well, your ghosts, because they are ghosts, let's not bullshit anybody. There are ghosts in this story. They serve the traditional ghostly role mm -hmm. of correctors of justice. Mm -hmm. I, I just think that's quite a cool retro thing. And it's become weirdly more pertinent in an era in which we are all of a sudden looking quite intently at, at recent history and saying, well, that was obviously, you know, egregiously wrong. And I'm thinking particularly kind of sexual misconduct. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to stray too close into spoilers, but it, it, it almost feels like it's quite a contemporary take on a retro ghost story. Yes. And the thing that I was deliberately trying to do, also drawing on what I see around me, is yes, you know, we've spent a lot of time, as you said, it's a gothic tradition, like sins of the father, right? Mm -hmm. And this story is also looking at sins of the women, right? Yes. And, uh, and, you know, may take some hits for um, some of the portrayals of women in this book, but I think it's very realistic. And I think it's something people can be afraid to talk about is the role that women play in abuse um, in terms of enabling mm -hmm. as well as perpetrating, but certainly... Um, <laughs> I mean, I will just say, uh, if there's an abuser, there's usually a large circle of people around that abuser supporting them and enabling them. And uh, 
as much as, you know, we talk about feminism and women's rights, we still have to look at the way that women treat each other in these situations. Well, certainly, certainly historically, definitely. I mean, because I know we are tipped around quite contentious issues here. Like, I think by this point, everyone listening knows, you know, I'm on the side of the angels. But I think about my grandma, right? My grandma was a wonderful woman. She she introduced me to horror. I remember she put like Nightmare on Elm Street on when I was about nine and just Ooh. ruined my life for about five years. But like, she was wow. a wonderful woman, incredibly like the quintessential stalwart stoic wartime generation yeah but when i think back to the way she used to talk about other women particularly particularly young women when she was old there was so much internalized misogyny there i've got the terminology for it now but it was clearly just internalized misogyny that she had yeah very little time for for women who rocked the boat very little time for capital f feminism um right really thought that she should toe the line when it came to what my my granddad wanted at the same time if they had an argument she'd, i've seen her throw plates at him you know so it wasn't she wasn't some meek woman but in that mm-hmm. generation there was there was this goes back to what i said about downton abbey you know know your place this is it's exactly the same mm-hmm. thing that's that's an internalized class thing with my, my grandma's generation it was an internalized misogyny and i think what we may nowadays term enabling may have been a different form of victim i don't know i'm not the person to have this conversation you know but it's it's more complex than just good and bad mm-hmm. and so the know your place yes so there, the, the know your place is alive and well even though it's kind of got fuzzier edges on it perhaps and we would say that it doesn't exist anymore and that there is some equality and there is right. We've made, you know, there's, it's a tremendously different era right now than any previous era, but it's still at work in some pretty widespread and insidious ways. And so So, these are difficult things to talk about because they are and with social media, you know, again, I love social media. I love Twitter but it's just become uh, any little thing. People are so willing to jump on an attack. And so it, it's, uh, it's, it's funny how it is causing me to filter my language, given that this is a really deep, nuanced conversation we're having. Or like uh-huh. it, it's just a good, long conversation. I want to try and say it's deep, nuanced. It's a good, long conversation. And like I'm feeling like it's hard to talk about because... <laughs> of people's reactions to it this is my own problem anyway. I, I i live my life in terror with this podcast because i mm. i just feel like yeah. it's inevitable i mean this is like 80 nearly nearly 90 episodes i'm amazed i've got this far without being cancelled because i have I, I have no filter i mean i've got an edit button but i have no filter and obviously we, we talk about very problematic things you know because the general the genre is predicated upon them um and it's actually, I think, a testament to the fact that in the main, people are far more open to nuance than we're led to believe. Yeah. You know, some of the things I've said by now, I've, I've cringed and and <laughs> I'm, I've yet to take as a task because I think people know that I mean well and that I may get it wrong occasionally. I may use the wrong terminology. You know, the world is changing so fast and I'm 38. I'm ready. For, I'm a dinosaur. <laughs> you know, so I think we do the best that we can. And I think people have still got a lot more a lot more awareness of intent than, you know, the, the Jeremiah's about social media would have us believe. Good. Let's hope so anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it is a goal of mine to continue writing ghost stories in one era or another because there's something about that idea of, like, being able to tell um, a story that is thrilling, scary, and culturally relevant, which, you know, uh, ghost <laughs> ghost stories were a way to make sense of the world around you. So that's what I was trying to do here and will continue to try to do. Well, one of the aspects of, the, of, of Sam's characterization that I really liked, and it kind of made me laugh, is that she has absolutely no issue accepting that the house is haunted. And, and she's... <laughs> She's kind of quite flippant about the ghosts. So she sees and she hears all sorts of things and just kind of takes it in her stride. 
and and that seemed an interesting character choice to me she's she's far from um you know she she doesn't she's not on the fainting couch at all she just kind of plows on she has some horrendous episodes i mean there are three scenes in this book that genuinely just like stuck struck me such such excellent imagery like you've got a real gift for truly unsettling images oh geez thanks i mean there are several examples i can think of there's that like sam seeing the night nurse just standing in the corner the night nurse is a, a whole thing in this book and i think i'm going to leave that vague for people to pick up there's the scene where she's chased from the crypt and hears the voice saying please stay and then there's you even pack in an honest to god jump scare with this scene oh boy with a sudden reveal of of a skull. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Sam just takes it in a stride. Yeah, so part yeah. Part of it is that in some schools of thought it's just impossible to believe that ghosts are real. Like you're not even going to entertain it. But then also I I didn't want to make her into the vein of being scared by these things because it seemed like it was well-trodden territory having a character who is kind of scared and questioning the ghosts and she's really on a mission and they're just a distraction. And I think it's because you know, her life really is about survival at this point when we meet her in the novel, uh, you know, in her life, you know, she has no money, she has no place to live. She has no family. Um, she doesn't have time for entertaining thoughts about ghosts, right? Like she needs to find, a way to afford rent, right? Mm-hmm. So her life is just too practical <laughs> to uh, be scared really by these things or bothered by them. She's she's just like at the end of her rope in terms of what she needs to accomplish before she sinks away. Yeah. Okay. Made me laugh a little bit in parts though. Just kind of put a smile on my face and she just kind of... Ra- okay, <laughs> back to the crypt we go. Um, <laughs> Part of it is based on a little bit, again, my best friend, Sonia, who grew up in Chinatown, New York, and, um, you know, a very, very tough existence. Uh, and she just tells me one day that when, she's in, when she was in high school, um, she used to go to the Met all the time, right? The Metropolitan Museum. Mm-hmm in New York city. And it's a beautiful museum filled with, you know, European rooms, French rooms, all sorts of art, you know, mummies, things like that. And she, I'm in there one day with her and she tells as adults and she tells me that, yeah, she used to come here a lot in high school and visit there and hang out there. And then she just starts pointing out to me all the different rooms that have ghosts in them or, or artwork that's haunted. And she like, she's really seeing it. And then I learned from her, you know, that, Sonia and her family like ghosts are just there they're just there you know and they're not really your problems you know you've got more important things to deal with so I think that's kind of what I was basing it on that kind of New York toughness you know yeah you mentioned she lives in Chinatown is she Chinese yeah she she came over when she was 11 from Macau yeah so she yes that's interesting so I was speaking to Cassandra Kaur and they told me the Eastern tradition of ghosts is very, very different and much more pragmatic. Yes. It is that acceptance yes. that the spirits are all around us and we just yes. have to kind of crack on. Um, so, yeah, that is yeah. interesting. Yeah, you can, you, yeah, you can, they have, they have, she and her family, they have all sorts of rules for what you, what you do and what you don't do in terms of the spirits. Uh-huh. But it's, it's a regular everyday conversation nobody's looking at you like you're crazy for talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Getting towards the end here, I'm going to, this this is the closest I'm going to tread towards a spoiler. Um, The novel hinges on this discovery of a crypt and an oubliette beneath the house. Yeah. Yeah. Now for my listeners sake and to help me avoid looking ignorant, can you just tell us what an oubliette is? An oubliette is basically a dungeon built into a floor yeah. and you would find it in medieval structures, castles, uh, forts, things like that. And the idea was that, you know, the name is French and it means more or less to forget, to forget about somebody. 
And so an oubliette is a place where you would put a person you wanted to punish or a prisoner, you would put them in this hole in the floor and consider them forgotten. You were forgotten. You do not exist anymore. Which again is a, is a, something like that Gothic psychology. You know, there's always been this idea of the Gothic as a quite as a fictional manifestation of the conscious and subconscious and that yes. things are suppressed and buried and you know so that's another link to the very roots of the genre but i always love the chance to shoehorn some creepy real life trivia into these conversations uh-huh. so i wonder in your research for this this book did you come across the macabre history of leap castle no tell me more I was honestly sure you had. So I'm just going to use this as a, as a basically an excuse to talk about this now. Yeah. So Leap Castle is often called the most haunted building in Ireland. Um, uh-huh. And it's reading about it was the first time I ever heard of, the, of an oubliette. So uh-huh. it was fought over this castle for centuries and it went in and out of ownership of the old Carroll family um, in the 1500s. And then there were wholesale renovations in the 1900s, and it revealed an honest-to-God oubliette in the chapel, right? Behind a wall. In the chapel, in yeah. the chapel. Whoa! An eight-foot drop onto iron spikes. It's like serious, Ooh. like, hammer stuff, you know. You're expecting Vincent Price to show you around. Um, and when they found it, it was full of skeletons. And it was, oh. it was surmised that the old carols would just drop their enemies through a trap door onto these spikes, right? Wow. But the creepiest detail is that they found a gold pocket watch dated to the mid-19th century in there, which oh. suggests that someone was using this oubliette much later than we would have expected. <laughs> And because that's the only time I'd ever come across the word, I wonder whether you'd read that story and thought, oh, that's good. That's going in the book. I got now that that's that's far. That's that's incredible. I'm going to I'm going to study up on that now. I got the word uh, from another author that I really like, Deborah Harkness. She's an American historian of science. And she uh, she wrote the, the All Souls trilogy, um, Discovery of Witches. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of incredible, you know, medical um, alchemy research and things like that. And there's an oubliette in one of her stories. Uh, And so that's how I stumbled across it and just was fascinated by the word and the term. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, some of the images that, you know, I I set Beggar's Abbey, um, the art exterior architecture came from this place in Yorkshire, Mount Grace Priory. It's right on the edge of the the North Yorkshire Moors. And um, that was a real Carthusian monastery. Because I was looking around for what the building should look like. I very much worked by looking for images that spark my mind. And there was an image. I think it it was a servant, I believe, perhaps, you know, a nursery maid or something like that, who had come back to visit this place after it had been turned over to the National Trust, right? She, like you said, all these buildings, you know, the, the families all lose out, right, rightly or wrongly. And um, she's in the attic and as an, as an elderly woman, and it's just this very eerie photo. And there's one of those like hip baths in the corner. So like, you know, the idea that the servants are all taking their baths out in public with each other, because like you said, you know, it's, it, they're, they're beneath, they're not considered human, right? So of course, they should have to take, you know, their baths in public in front of all the other servants, right? But so it was that image in Mount Grace of that woman that kind of also started the strand that has to deal with servants in this book. Okay, right. Well, last question I want to ask you about the book um, is for, well, the benefit of, of anyone who's, you know, in between writing the first and second novel, I suppose, because... It's been a really insightful journey talking to you because when you first came on the show, you just brought out obviously the plague letters and you you were particularly humble and particularly open about the fact that you didn't feel like you were on top of the publishing kind of game. You were, you know, you were very open about the fact that you felt like you're on the back foot and you had lots to learn. 
And then now it's the chance to talk to somebody who's brought out a second book. So my question, I suppose, is what did you learn between the first book and the second one? It's the same thing. Perseverance, discipline, setting deadlines. It's the only way to get it done, Neil. So you've got to set your daily deadline, one hour, one hour a day. If there's a deadline, you can make it happen. It's the same thing. I can't believe I wrote this book in six months, right? I mean, geez. But when you have somebody telling you you have to do it, you're going to do it. But, you know, for for plague letters, it was myself forcing me to meet those deadlines. So it's the same thing. We all hate it, but you have to do that thing where you set an hour a day and you force yourself to sit down and you force yourself to type no matter what kind of crap comes out of your fingers like it's the only way so neil eight months i understand because i haven't written anything either but you and i gotta start doing it neil yeah have you got ideas oh you can we can do that thing that writer's challenge you know where you like email each other every day or tweet it right done done we could do that we could do that let's do do that that. let's do do that. that let's expose ourselves for all the world to see Yeah, because like it's I also feel and again, I'm still like, I'm still such a complete novice, right? You have to keep writing and I'm behind starting the third book because you have to keep doing it. Have Um, you got an idea for the third book? I have a couple ideas. Yeah. Are they are they ghastly and ghostly and horrible? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Good to hear. I'm bringing I, I think the third one I'm bringing Penelope back so she can be even more I Disgusting. knew, I knew you were going to bring Penelope. Yeah. This, this, sorry for new listeners. This is a, a character. This is a badass character from the from the plague letters. Who there were things left unresolved and questions to be answered. And I knew there'd be a sequel. So the one I'm planning, it's she, never. I'll just say, yeah, it's Penelope, and she's going to be worse than ever because it's the only way to be. Kidding. Is she got? Is Simon going to be there? Yeah, but he's in the periphery. She steals his cook. She steals all his friends, you know, anyway. You realise what you're doing here is you are writing the girl with the dragon tattoo, medieval version. Okay. Just think about it. In those, in the the Millennium Trilogy, it started about Blomfist and then it became about Elizabeth Salander because everyone realised she was the cooler character. Yeah, yeah. I'm editing myself right now. There's something again that I could... Anyway. You can tell me that off. Anyway, there. thank you for saying that. I'll tell you. Yeah, I'll tell you later. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Can you recommend something for my listeners to read? <laughs> Cut out this pause. Uh, oh, my God. I mean, The Little Stranger. Yes, The Little Stranger by Sarah Waters. Yeah, I, yeah. It's still that one. You're never going to get me arguing. It's my favorite ghost story of all time. Really? Yeah. I say I talk about it, I talk about it all the time on this show. Um, yeah. I'm actually doing a bit of an exciting thing at the moment that I keep hinting at on Twitter. I'm doing a whole thing to do with with ranking horror novels um, that may or may not see the light of day. And my only question is, how high can I reasonably put The Little Stranger? And I think I'm going to do the sacrilegious thing of putting it higher than The Haunting of Hill House. Yes, it is that good. I would have to go. I would have to go back and reread The Haunting of Hill House because, yes, that is an incredible book. I would have to read it again to see if I agree with you that it should be higher. But um, yeah, yeah. I can't wait for that list. I can't wait for the list. All right, go on, go on. I'm going to slightly change this up because you've been on before and you gave a great answer to what truly scares you. But this time I'm going to ask a more bespoke question. Now, I don't do this for everyone, Vicky. Okay, so oh. um, count yourself lucky. Last time around, you talked about your imprint mate catriona ward yes and you you were you said with how impressed you were that she in her own words wrote her nightmares and you said that you weren't ready to do that yet are you ready now is that what you did in beggar's abbey or are we still yet to read your true nightmares uh i am not yet ready to do that you know katrina can write her nightmares. And Tina Baker has no filter. She says what is on her mind. And I feel like both of them are far more along on this journey of life than I am because I'm still editing what I say and I am not yet ready to write my nightmares. 
because I'm afraid they'll come true. It's, a, it's, it's superstition, right? I'm afraid I'll jinx it. So got to work that out. Yeah. So that I want to read. How about you? How about you? How about you? Can you write your nightmares? Well, I am writing my nightmares. So you are doing it still. Okay. My book is literally me sitting down and going, right, I'm scared of that. I'm scared of that. I'm scared of that. I'm scared of that. Here's a story tying them all together. Yeah. It's horrendous. Yeah. yeah. I lie in bed at night thinking about it, thinking this is awful. I, just, I don't want to think about these things, but yeah. um, I, I'm a whole bundle of neuroses. That means you're good company. Yeah. 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 You're good company. Well, all I can hope, Vicky, is that one day you are ready to write these nightmares down because I, I really want to read them. As I say, Beggar's Abbey is a slim book. It's only about 230 pages, but it contained three separate scenes that made me go eek. Um, there's a, a book by T. Kingfisher called The Twisted Ones, which everyone credits as having the only jump scare in fiction. I would say that Beggar's Abbey also does something similar. So I want you to come back again and again and again with every every ghastly book, and I hope each time we get closer to the core of what really terrifies you. <laughs> Good. Vicky Valentine, thank you for talking scared. Thank you for having me. Complete pleasure. I bloody love Vicky. Few people in my actual life are as nice to me as she is. She was so nice that I had to cut out quite a few sections of effusive praise because, let's face it, you all know I have the editing tools and the means to cut it out. And if I left it in, it would just seem creepily self-congratulatory. <laughs> I was trying to get her to talk about her book because, well, aside from it being the entire purpose of this podcast, Beggar's Abbey plays with the gothic tropes beautifully. It's a really slim novel and it deals with a very compressed amount of time, which I found odd considering ghost stories of this type tend to be loose, languid affairs. This is rapid fire. Stuff happens constantly. Sometimes that's to its detriment. I would have liked a little bit more time to get to know the characters and fully understand their motivations. But kudos to Vicky for being able to cram so much story and so much backstory into such a compact little novel. And kudos indeed for those three scenes that are genuinely skin-tingling. There's one moment that would make such a wonderful jump scare in a movie. In fact, it's a jump scare I've always thought should be done more. You know that thing when people close their eyes when something is coming for them and then... And they open their eyes and, and nothing is there and then they turn and something jumps out. Well, I always think they should open their eyes and something should be there looking right at them. That'd be way scarier. I've only seen it done once in a kind of neglected mid-noughties horror film called Creep. Not the Mark Duplass, Netflix, Bloomhouse thing. This is a, a much... It's a much nastier creature feature set in the London underground. Um, it's pretty horrible stuff, actually. But there's this one scene where the monster is hunting her and she closes her eyes. And when she opens them, this thing is looking at her from inches away. Terrifying. And, and basically, Vicky's book does something quite similar. And it, it's the closest thing to a jump scare since I read T. Kingfisher's The Twisted Ones. It's great. So with scenes like that, I can't believe that Vicky doesn't back herself more as a horror writer. And I can't wait for her to really write her nightmares down for us to read. But yeah, talking to Vicky Valentine inspires me to write. And to be the person that she thinks I am. But mostly to write. That's why she and I have agreed to do one of those writer's challenge things where we each set ourselves a goal every day and then basically boast to each other when we've done it. So get ready to see a lot of Twitter updates about that. Sorry in advance. <laughs> I do need to get back to writing my story. Despite all the advice about focus and perseverance, including CJ Tudor, no less, who told me to avoid the lore of the shiny new idea, I, well, I didn't. And I instead ended up with the first half of two entirely different novels. I think they're both good ideas, but I need to finish at least one of them. But which? I mean, you tell me. Do I complete the pitch black ghost story set in a decaying house and its adjacent quarry? 
a house haunted by sleep paralysis sex demons? Or do I finish the one about the people trapped on the tropical island being hunted by killers? That one sounds less sexy, but it starts with an entire family being slaughtered. So yeah, both compelling ideas, I think. Which do I work on? Which? With the amount of time this show now demands of me, I'll be lucky to have a draft of either by next Christmas. But good problems to have. A loyal audience and a weekly conversation with a horror great. So mustn't complain. I'll just sleep less and stop playing Elden Ring. But anyway, that's quite enough about me. If you have anything to say about this episode or any other or any topic at all, you can get in touch on Twitter or Instagram at TalkScaredPod or email directly at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. Drop me a line. I try my best to respond to all correspondence. Don't forget Patreon if you want bonus episodes, including an upcoming bit with Alan Baxter talking scary Australia. Then it's patreon.com slash talking scared pod. And if you can, please subscribe and leave a review. We're slowly accruing those five star ratings, but everyone is utterly essential, as well as a bright moment in my day. Next week, I'm back with a big name. Alma Katsu is here to talk her new novel, The Fervour, as well as plenty of insight into her latter-day historical horror classic, The Hunger. You don't want to miss that. But until then, don't go upstairs alone. Keep a candle lit in your room and stay out of the household crypt after dark. Read good books and remember, it's good to be scared.